This hearing will come to order. Uh, in Moscow on Monday, Vladimir Putin watched over a military parade in Red Square. Russian troops marched past. Tanks and missiles rolled by. It was a carefully rehearsed projection of strength. Because autocrats can be many things. They can be brutal. They can be evil. They can even be war criminals. But they can never admit when they are losing. President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people have shattered the image of Putin's power. They have shown incredible courage and strength in the face of his brazen aggression. U.S. and indeed global assistance has been integral to the successes they have achieved so far and also shown Putin that free democratic societies that respect the rule of law and individual human rights will come together in the face of autocratic aggression. We are united in our support of Ukraine because it is a harbinger of the kind of aggression the rest of the world could face if we do not support those fighting for our values. A weak, cornered Putin is also dangerous for our NATO allies and partners. We don't want to see Russia go to Moldova or Sweden or Finland. We don't want to see Russia go into a country on NATO's eastern flank. Not only do we need to be prepared to fulfill our treaty obligations with NATO, we need to deter Russia from even considering an attack on a NATO ally. So I look forward to hearing from our witnesses detailed plans for the administration's latest supplemental requests in support of Ukraine, which almost all of my colleagues and I are working hard to pass into law, hopefully today. We must continue our critical military support, particularly as the dynamics of the conflict continue to shift and continue to work with our partners to provide Ukraine with the kinds of weapons and training it truly needs to counter Russian threats from land, air, and sea and backfilling requests from those countries also providing Ukraine with critical support. We must continue to work through reliable partners and allies to provide humanitarian relief, support for documenting the Russian military's war crimes and atrocities, and not lose sight of the critical longer-term reform and governance efforts that Ukrainians so desperately want and deserve. I believe we must also think about reconstruction efforts in Ukraine, the tools and ongoing governance and economic reforms, specifically in the judicial space, that will facilitate rebuilding critical Ukrainian sectors and attracting foreign investment. And we must do all this in close coordination with our European partners who are hosting hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian refugees and whose economic support for Ukraine and divestiture from Russia will be critical to long-term success. On the security front, should Sweden and Finland decide to apply for NATO membership, this committee is already working to ensure swift consideration. And just as Putin has, in fact, empowered NATO's mission and caused other nations to reassess, so too must we reassess and increase our energy diplomacy. Europe's dependence on Russia fossil fuels feeds straight into Putin's war machine. In the short term, we need to consider helping. We should be diverting gas and oil to Europe because our allies have to keep the lights on. But in the medium and long term, investing and collaborating with the private sector and our allies on clean energy technology is the best way to isolate Putin and achieve independence from Russian energy supplies. So whether it is the private sector, multilateral alliances, or the Biden administration, Putin has been taken by surprise by our forceful response. The resolve of the West is something he wasn't expecting, and now Putin has dragged Russia into a strategic blunder of historic proportions. 
He also underestimated the bravery of Ukrainian citizens and their commitment to beating back the Russian invasion. Of course, it will be Ukrainians who decide what winning means. Certainly, considering the atrocities Russian forces have committed, a just and lasting peace should include holding those responsible for war crimes that have been committed. But with our continued unity and support here in the United States and around the world, Ukraine will be victorious. So we thank our witnesses for appearing before us today at such a critical point in time. There is a lot of money that is flowing here, so we want to make sure that we are doing it in the most correct, powerful, and transparent way. And that's part of why we're having this hearing today. With that, let me turn to the distinguished ranking member for his opening comments. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Today marks the 78th day of Russia's full-scale war on Ukraine. As terrible as this war is, I've been heartened to see so many people around the world come together to support Ukraine, especially in my home state of Idaho. Idahoans are finding ways to support the Ukrainian people from thousands of miles away, from financial support to do donating clothing supplies and, wearing, uh, and raising awareness online. I'm extremely proud of the support uh, of freedom. Today in Idaho, our state is welcoming the Ukrainian Council General, Dmitro Kushnorik uh, to Boise, and showcasing Idahoan support for the Ukraine cause. I regret I'm unable to join them today, but I know Governor Little and others in our state are representing us well. Now, as far as international efforts go, our concerted uh, emergency response has given Ukraine's brave defenders the tools they've needed to survive and indeed fight back against the invaders. Through our joint response, we have found new unity with our allies and a shared realization that the challenges we have to confront in Europe are much greater than we had assumed. NATO is stronger than ever. Indeed, we're about to expand NATO. Uh, the uh, NATO organization, it needs to be underscored, is a defensive organization. It is not an offensive organization. It threatens no one. Uh, the Russian, uh, uh, Mr. Putin uh, from Russia, has claimed that somehow NATO threatens Russia. It does not, unless uh, Russia attempts to take one square inch of NATO ground. We have all said, and we mean it, uh, Russia needs to believe it, that not one square inch of NATO ground will be given up. Uh, we, uh, we must also admit that U.S. and European policy towards Russia over re recent decades has been wrong. We need to have a completely new strategy that accepts the reality of Putin and his aggression. We've reached a new phase in this conflict. Russia has lost so far in its original campaign to preempt regime change by conquering Kyiv and has switched its focus to fighting in the east and the south. Ukraine has proven it is capable of taking back its land, but we must commit to helping them win against Russia. Russia cannot win if uh, they consider winning either uh, the occupation uh, of, uh, of, uh, the, uh, of the Ukraine or changing the uh, uh, the government in Ukraine to a Russia-friendly government, that is not going to happen. That should be obvious to everyone in the world today. Over this past month, I, uh, I'm encouraged to see the U.S. finally provide Ukraine with uh, artillery and more modern NATO-compatible systems. I'm still waiting to see more robust air defense and heavy armor. We must keep up support and make sure that as long as Ukraine is willing to fight, it is equipped to do so. This also means we must think ahead and be ready to fill the gaps in its needs as the war changes. Humanitarian aid is also key to helping Ukraine win this war, and the United States is leading the response. 
but some have raised concerns that aid is not going to the places that need it most. Shortages of goods are particularly acute in the east and south of the country, close to the fighting. We need to ensure our aid is getting uh, through the last mile, not just across the border into Lviv. Opening our embassy and putting our team back in Kyiv will help. The war crimes that have already been uncovered in Ukraine are appalling. I strongly support U.S. efforts to back the government of Ukraine in gathering information and documenting these atrocities. I hope to hear from uh, um, uh, Ambassador uh, Leinschak about what more we plan to do uh, to punish those responsible for these awful crimes. As Russia and Ukraine prepare for the long haul, the U.S. and our allies must do as well. This will require a long-term strategy for maximized effectiveness. We must begin to look beyond the emergency supplemental and establish mechanisms to work with our Ukraine partners. Today, I hope you will share with us the Biden administration's strategy for U.S. assistance to Ukraine going forward and answer some specific questions about what winning actually looks like and what steps we must take to get there. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Secretary. I'm Secretary, yeah. Senator Rich. Whatever. We have a lot of secretaries here today. So, um, and we have a star-studded cast of uh, very talented, smart, and powerful women all doing this work for us. So uh, we're going to start. Uh, we're going to ask you to um, uh, summarize your statements. Your full statements will be included for the record. We're going to ask you to summarize your statements in about uh, five minutes or so. Um, and, uh, and then we'll enter into a conversation with you. So we'll start off uh, with uh, Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, Karen Donfried, then turn to the Assistant Administrator for Europe and Eurasia, Aaron McKee, then the Assistant Secretary of State for Political and Military Affairs, Jessica Lewis, and then our Ambassador-at-Large for Global Criminal Justice, uh, Ms. Van Schack. Secretary Donfried. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, Senator Portman, Senator Barrasso, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today to discuss the United States' response to Russia's premeditated and unprovoked attack on Ukraine. The bipartisan support of members of this committee and the majority of Congress for Ukraine is extraordinary. The work we are doing with your vital help is enabling Ukraine to achieve victories on the battlefield, relieve human suffering, advance justice and accountability, support economic stability and energy security, and intensify international pressure on the Kremlin to end this unconscionable war. When it comes to Russia's devastating war against Ukraine, the values and interests of the United States are clear. We are doing everything we can to help Ukraine defend its sovereignty and territorial integrity. We are demonstrating the strength of our convictions by leading the global response to ensure Putin's unlawful and immoral war of choice results in a strategic failure for Russia. The American people and our government have made clear to the world that we will not allow President Putin and his enablers to continue these atrocities and their aggression with impunity. Against this threat to regional security, global stability, and our shared values, we are supporting freedom, democracy, and the rules-based order that make our own security and prosperity and that of the world possible. The danger Russia poses to Europe today, including to its own people who value freedom, 
has not been felt so starkly since the days of the Soviet Union and the Cold War. Yet the determination and coordination of our allies and partners in response has been just as impressive, fueled by the resolve and bravery of Ukrainians. With your support, we have accomplished a great deal. First, we have strengthened Ukraine. We continue to provide Ukraine the military, economic, and humanitarian support that it needs. Since Russia's February 24, 2022 invasion of Ukraine, we have sent more than $3.8 billion in security assistance, and our allies have stepped up too. We are providing increasingly sophisticated and modern Western equipment that the Ukrainian military has assimilated with professionalism. We have committed a billion dollars in direct budget support to bolster Ukraine's economy, maintain government services, and rally our allies and partners to fund and plan for Ukraine's reconstruction. And we've provided $688 million in life-saving assistance for civilians in need within Ukraine and the refugees in the neighboring countries. Second, we have imposed serious costs on Russia for its brutal war against Ukraine. We have put in place sanctions, export controls, and other economic measures that are targeting Russia's ability to finance its war machine. President Putin's war of aggression against Ukraine has made Russia an international pariah. The actions we have taken in coordination with those of our allies and partners have isolated Russia as never before on the world stage. Our unity of purpose also shows we and the international community will not go back to business as usual while Moscow continues its brutal assault on Ukraine. Ukrainians are fighting valiantly, and they are using the support we are providing to great effect. They are fighting for their liberty, for their right to exist as a free country. Yet success is still precarious. Russia continues to inflict suffering and devastation on Ukraine and its people and tries to break our resolve with threats and intimidation. This is a crucial time for keeping concerted pressure on Russia to ensure Ukraine has the strongest possible position on the battlefield and eventually at the negotiating table. Now is the time to stand with Ukraine. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Administrator McKee. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members of the committee. I appreciate the opportunity to testify about USAID's work to support the people of Ukraine. We are now, as you noted, in the third month of the Kremlin's senseless, brutal war on Ukraine, a war that has displaced approximately 13.9 million people, which is roughly 30% of Ukraine's pre-war population. USAID has stood with the Ukrainian people for 30 years, and Putin's war has only deepened our commitment to an independent, democratic Ukraine. On day one of the Kremlin's full-scale invasion, USAID deployed a disaster assistance response team known as a DART to the region. The DART, which includes over 25 staff, is leading the U.S. government's humanitarian response to help address critical 
humanitarian needs caused by the invasion, including responding to the needs of those internally displaced. These efforts have achieved quick results, including emergency food assistance for more than 3.2 million people and access to safe drinking water for 409,000 people inside Ukraine. USAID Administrator Samantha Power has taken multiple trips to the region, beginning as early as February 25th with a visit to Warsaw, Krakow, and Brussels to reaffirm USAID's commitment to the Ukrainian people as they courageously fight to safeguard Ukraine's sovereignty and democratic future. These visits cemented our partnership with the EU, and we have acted quickly and decisively to utilize funding from the fiscal year uh, 2022 Ukraine Supplemental Appropriations Act to respond to emergency needs in Ukraine and the region. Our $1 billion contribution and direct budget support, $500 million of which has already been transferred, will enable the Ukrainian government to continue operating and responding to the critical needs of their people. Even as we step up our humanitarian efforts, we also remain steadfast in our commitment to Ukraine's independent, democratic, and more prosperous future. For years, this support has helped improve their governance and their systems. We are relying upon those to get to the people who need the relief today and lay the foundation for recovery and reconstruction in the future. So USAID is proud to stand with the Ukrainian people and are grateful for the support from Congress. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you. Secretary Lewis. Good morning, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee. I'm pleased to be here today with my colleagues. Two months ago, I spoke before this committee about security assistance as an instrument of foreign policy. I am proud to say that the security assistance we have provided to Ukraine has served our foreign policy objectives to protect the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine as they stand against Russia's brutal and unprovoked assault. The United States has provided approximately $3. billion in security assistance since the start of the war in February. We have used the Presidential Drawdown Authority an unprecedented nine times in FY22 for a value of over $3 billion, and managing that process from concept to authorization in days and in many instances in hours. Our allies and partners have joined together, and through our third-party transfer authorizations, we have facilitated the provision to Ukraine of U.S. origin systems, including over 12,000 anti-armor systems and over 1,550 anti-air systems. We have also notified Congress of our intent to obligate the entire $650 million in FMF provided in the previous supplemental, and we are committed to supporting humanitarian demining activities in Ukraine to save lives and help rebuild the country. President Biden's new supplemental request, which I understand is before Congress, would support the following items through FMF. Number one, Ukraine itself, while funds will support current and emerging military requirements. Two, to strengthen our allies in NATO's eastern flank in the context of Russia's increased aggression. Three, to support the backfill gaps created by direct donations of military equipment to Ukraine since the conflict began in February. Four, for FMF loan support, and five, we must seize the opportunity to off-ramp partners from Russian origin defense equipment. Finally, we must also take the lessons of Ukraine and apply them to Taiwan. The United States is determined to make sure that Taiwan has all the necessary means to defend itself under the auspices of the Taiwan Relations Act 
against any potential act to disrupt the status quo. United with our allies and partners, we will succeed and continue to support Ukraine. Thank you, and I request that my written testimony and supplemental materials be placed in the record, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. As I said at the beginning, all of your testimonies will be fully included in the record. Uh, Ambassador Van Schack, who I understand is with us uh, virtually. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and members of this distinguished committee. Ensuring accountability for the international crimes being committed by Russia's forces is a key pillar of the Biden administration's Ukraine policy, and I welcome the opportunity to brief you on these initiatives. I'm particularly honored to join you today from the city of Nuremberg, where 75 years ago, the Nazi perpetrators were held accountable for their crimes against humanity, war crimes, and, and crimes against the peace. In fact, I am beaming in from the very room where the judges deliberated before releasing their judgment, which would change the world forever. The international legal architecture that we utilize today to prosecute those responsible for international crimes is not only the result of the United States' own efforts at Nuremberg, but of all those who liberated Europe, including the then Soviet Union. Tragically, however, Russia has turned its back on its own history and its international and domestic obligations, including the Geneva Conventions. In response to Russia's unprovoked war of aggression in Ukraine, the United States, together with our friends and allies, is supporting a range of international accountability mechanisms, including investigations by Ukrainian authorities themselves, international investigations, including at the International Criminal Court, and investigations by any third country that might be able to establish jurisdiction. We have been instrumental in enabling the important work of human rights documenters and forensic experts on the ground inside and outside Ukraine, and in standing up the UN Human Rights Commission of Inquiry and the OSCE Moscow Mechanism Expert Mission. In this work, the State Department is coordinating closely with USAID, which is also supporting Ukrainians in documenting possible human rights abuses and war crimes. In the coming days, we plan to launch a major initiative with the European Union and the United Kingdom to expand efforts to provide strategic advice and operational assistance to Ukraine's Office of the Prosecutor General in both her headquarters in Kyiv and her field offices. In terms of the United States' own contributions to ensuring accountability for Russia's atrocities, we know that there is legislation under consideration before Congress that would close existing gaps within our War Crimes Act and criminalize crimes against humanity to enable prosecutions in our own courts in the event that we have custody over perpetrators. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Mish, Rish, members of this committee, this is another Nuremberg moment. There is a global consensus that Russia's conduct is intolerable and that those responsible for atrocities must be held accountable. Just as we did after World War II, we must continue to support domestic, international, and multilateral initiatives to coordinate efforts to advance the interlocking imperatives of justice and accountability, to preserve the sanctity of international law, to hold perpetrators accountable, and to respond to victims' legitimate demands for justice. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you all. We'll start a round of uh, <clears throat> five minutes questions. Uh, Chair recognize himself. Uh, Secretary Donfried, I, I strongly believe that Ukraine must define what <clears throat> winning this war looks like and must drive any terms of disengagement or a secession of hostilities. 
but clearly the timeline on which this war is being fought seems to have been elongated. So is that view the State Department's uh, position in terms of uh, how we define winning in this respect? Chairman Menendez, thank you very much for that question. And yes, the view of the State Department is the same as yours, which is Ukraine will define what winning this war means. And we are committed to supporting Ukraine so that it can prevail in this conflict. And the tremendous bipartisan support we have in Congress for the assistance we've been giving, whether that's security assistance, economic assistance, humanitarian assistance, puts us in an extremely strong position to stay the course, as you say, as it looks like this war quite tragically may grind on for some time still to come. Now, one thing that concerns me is that the more the successful the Ukrainians are on the battlefield, the greater the risk that Putin will do something um, uh, that would be outside of any international norm, something rather terrible to escalate the crisis. Uh, he may feel like he has to do something uh, along the lines of a chemical, biological, or tactical nuclear weapon. Does the administration share that concern? We are planning for all scenarios, and certainly we are thinking through what does happen if Putin were to suffer conventional losses? What might that lead him to do in terms of the kinds of weapons he could use? It is something we are talking about within the administration. It's also something we are talking through with our allies and partners as well, because certainly we would want to have a unified response. There are many scenarios out there, and I'm not sure it's helpful to go into specific hypotheticals, but I can assure you that that is something we are taking seriously and will do our best to be In addition for. to the potential responses that might be had along with our allies, if he makes such a grave mistake, uh, are we also thinking of ways uh, to decrease the likelihood for Russia to demonstrate its uh, capabilities? As you've seen, the administration has gotten out in front of several possible scenarios in suggesting that Russia may be making plans to, for example, use chemical weapons and calling that out in advance. On the nuclear front, President Biden has been very clear in talking about the special responsibility Russia and the U.S. carry given our status as nuclear powers and the need to be responsible not only in our actions but also in our rhetoric. And certainly we will continue to be very focused on trying to preempt any of those scenarios from playing out in real time. Uh, Assistant Secretary Lewis, uh, Congress has supported the administration's request to provide an incredible amount of U.S. military material going into Ukraine, some of it very technologically sophisticated. Uh, and I certainly commend you and your team working with DOD for expediting the delivery of much of this critically necessary material. Uh, but understanding the challenges in the war zone, including the inevitable loss on the battlefield, what end-use monitoring is being done to ensure that these weapons are not or could not fall into the wrong hands, what more needs to be and can be done in this regard?
very closely between the training and some of the meetings on a couple of different fronts. One is to make sure that we have all the agreements in place to monitor um, and to manage the security of the system that we are providing. Um, second is making sure that we're complying with all of the system laws. Um, as you know, there is a lazy law um, that exists um, to make sure that we are properly vetting the team, making sure we're speaking Uh, finally, uh, Ambassador Van Schaak, uh, on April 14th, the OSCE released a meticulously documented account of Russia's abuses within Ukraine, including evidence of directing target, direct targeting of innocent families, horrific sexual violence against women and girls, executions, and forced deportations of Ukrainian citizens to Russia. For too long, from Myanmar, Syria, to Darfur, we have watched perpetrators bomb murder, rape, and torture with impunity. The perpetrators who committed these crimes believed they could get away with it. Unfortunately, in many cases, they were absolutely right. Please tell me this time that Putin will be different. Thank you very much for that question, and I, I hope the answer is yes. We have never seen this type of um, international coordination around the imperative of accountability, frankly, since World War II and then in the 1990s when the two ad hoc criminal tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda were created. There is a huge international effort to document crimes that is being done multilaterally through partnerships and also individually at the civil society level and a huge effort with prosecutors from different systems working together. There's the formation of a joint investigative team and then we have the International Criminal Court operating. The real challenge is going to be gaining custody over the accused. But those of us in this business are playing a long game. And eventually, people, perpetrators, will want to travel. They will have family members abroad. They will want to visit the capitals of Europe. And the international prosecutors around the world will be ready with indictments in hand. Well, I think your job is equally as important to any of the other panelists we have here today, uh, because uh, if uh, the world sees Putin get, get, gets away uh, with impunity uh, and faces uh, no consequences in this context, uh, then others will, will follow suit. So uh, I look forward to your vigorous work in this regard. Uh, Senator Rich has had to step away to another engagement. He's asked Senator Portman uh, to step in for him, so Senator Portman is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for your steadfast uh, support of Ukraine and, and specifically your work over the years on the human rights issues and now the issue of war crimes. Um, and I couldn't agree with you more. We need to ensure that the International Criminal Court uh, takes this as seriously as the Ukrainian prosecutors are. They um, handed down their first indictment this week, I saw, uh, and there are so many instances as we're seeing constantly again last night uh, on video, seeing uh, clear war crimes being committed. Uh, so I, I appreciate the work all of these uh, public servants are doing every day. Uh, you all are waking up every morning, I know, with the thought in mind that America's role here is to help Ukraine win. And I want to talk a little about uh, how we define victory. Uh, when Secretary Austin uh, said after meeting with President Zelensky that we can win this war against Russia, uh, this happened a few weeks ago, I thought that was positive. Uh, on Monday, uh, the foreign minister 
um, of Ukraine, who all of us have had a chance to, to visit with, said, of course, the victory for us in this war will be a liberation of the rest of the territory. So Assistant Secretary Donfried, first, just a yes or no, do you believe Ukraine can win this war? Yes. And how would you define victory? Would you define victory as requiring the return of all Ukraine's sovereign territory, including that that the Russians seized in 2014? Well, Senator Portman, thank you for that question, and thank you for your engagement on these issues. Your question very much relates to where Chairman Menendez began, which is, are we in a position of believing that it is Ukraine that should be defining what winning means? And I agreed with, with Chairman Menendez's statement on that, and that is where the administration is. We believe Ukraine should define what victory means, and our policy is trying to ensure Ukraine's success, both by so, assisting so support so administration's official position is that victory is uh, getting Crimea back and, and getting the Donetsk and Luhansk region back as well. Again, I believe that is for the Ukrainians to define. Uh, with regard to energy, which is, I think, our number one problem with regard to sanctions, unbelievably, uh, Europe still sends roughly, we are told, 870 million dollars a day back to Russia in terms of energy receipts, uh, funding the Putin war machine. Um, I spoke to some of our European friends this week when they were in town for a, a Munich security conference type meeting. And um, I understand that we now have some arrangement with Europe through a task force where we're looking at making the switch from uh, this dependency on Russia to other sources of fuel. But it's going very slowly, in my view. And uh, I know it's easier for us uh, to have made our decision than it is for the Europeans. We were sending about $50 million a day, by the way, to the Russians um, for the uh, oil and gas that we have now sh uh, shut off coming to the United States. But I'd like to know two things. One, what is this task force with the EU doing? Uh, in one of the statements, it mentions a work plan that the task force is following. What, what progress have they made to date in actually reducing reliance on Russian energy and can you describe in more detail the, this task force work plan that was mentioned? Senator Portman, I couldn't agree with you more that energy is a key factor in Europe's response to Russia's war against Ukraine. And you're right, the dependence of many of our European allies and partners is far, far greater than what the U.S. had. Some of these countries are 100% dependent on Russia for their energy supplies. And that was the reason why President Biden and President von der Leyen on the EU side set up a task force. So what, so what has the task force done? That's so, my question. Well, the task force is trying to help the Europeans think about what are alternate supplies if and as they wean themselves off Russian energy. Okay. You've seen the Europeans ban Russian coal. They are now working That, that will be on as of August, so they haven't banned it yet. Uh, right. They're still spending money uh, on, on coal, and natural gas is, is the largest single one. So it's starting to get them to think about, I mean, I just think it's got to be people are dying on the battlefield, civilians are dying, and we continue to fund this war machine through these enormous uh, amounts of funds going back because of energy. The, the, the answer, obviously, from the U.S. point of view is to provide them an alternative. And I've been critical, as you know, that the Biden administration has not done more to enhance our own production here, particularly with regard to natural gas that can be liquefied and sent to Europe there. Um, this last week, they had a record number of imports coming in to Europe uh, through their own ports, bringing in uh, LNG, liquefied, nat uh, liquefied natural gas. Uh, but I would hope that we would 
expand um, our production here quickly and stop the policies that, that are stifling the, the production, particularly of natural gas, and help with regard to the, the infrastructure that's needed. And let the Europeans know that we're going to be there for them um, because we have the ability in this country to be able to provide that as well as encouraging our allies, particularly in the Mideast, to do so. So I hope that's what will happen. Uh, with regard to NATO aspirations, I hope we will also continue to say that we believe that, that this is something that Ukraine should aspire to. Uh, and I'll have further questions uh, for the record for you, Mr. Secretary Lewis, with regard to the drawdown authority and how long it will last. But thank you very much for your service. And, Mr. Chairman, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Uh, I understand your urgency, and we share that sense of urgency. Thank you. Uh, uh, Senator Markey is next. Uh, yes, yeah, some of our other colleagues are not ready, so. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> my, um, my first uh, question would be uh, to, um, to um, Secretary Lewis, and, and it would be on, again, just this issue of what um, will define victory uh, and how long it will take, in our government's opinion, for um, that victory to be achieved. It, is, it, is, it our, is it this administration's view that this is going to wind up being a protracted war and that um, and that we should just get ready to settle in for uh, a, a protracted conflict between Ukraine and Russia with U.S. support the whole way. Well, Senator Markey, thank you for the question. Um, and I'm specifically going to start by referring back to what Assistant Secretary Donfried laid out um, as we look at uh, victory in Ukraine, um, which obviously will be defined by the Ukrainians, um, making sure they maintain its territorial integrity and security, imposing costs on Russia, and maintaining our unity. Um, when it comes to the work that the Bureau of Political and Military Affairs, um, what we work on is, you know, we provide, um, along with our colleagues in DOD, um, the security assistance that allows Ukraine to ensure that it continue, frankly, its inspiring defense of its own territory, um, and that when there is a negotiation, um, that they can come to the table from a position of strength. Um, to get to your core question, which I think really is, you know, how long will the war last? Um, I wish I had a, a, a definitive answer for you. What I can tell is that tell you that it is clear that we are in a new phase of the conflict. Um, the Russians have retreated um, from Kiev. They have moved to the south and the east, um, uh, where they are. The Ukrainians continue to fight valiantly. And at this point, our goal is to supply the Ukrainians with what they need for this phase of the war. And I, I should finally say that I am, we would not have been able to do any of this in terms of providing the security assistance they need um, without the strong bipartisan support of Congress. Okay. And Secretary Godfrey, um, are we making it very clear to um, Russia that we do not want to pose an existential threat to them, that our only goal is to restore the territorial integrity uh, of Ukraine? We are making it very clear to Russia that this is not a conflict between Russia and the United States. We are not going to engage directly in this war. President Biden has been explicit in saying we are not sending U.S. troops to fight in this war. So I do believe we have made that clear. Our goal here is to end a war, 
not to <clears throat> enlarge it. And obviously, we don't want a nuclear conflict, uh, and Putin is saber-rattling. Doesn't it make sense for the U.S. just to say flat out, we will not uh, be um, the country that engages in a, few, a first use of nuclear weapons in, um, in Ukraine, just so that the whole world knows and, um, uh, and Russia knows as well that that will not be something that we will engage in, that that a no first use policy of uh, the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine is what uh, our policy is and will continue to be. Again, I would say the U.S. has been clear that we are not looking to engage in this war and that NATO is a defensive alliance. I think that increasingly people in our country but around the world are afraid that this could escalate um, and that nuclear weapons may be involved. So... From my perspective, I just think it would be wise for our country just to say flat out, we will not use nuclear weapons if nuclear weapons have not been used against Ukraine or the United States. That would be, yeah, that would be my uh, uh, position. And, and I would also hope that, at least on the side, um, that conversations could be engaged in um, with regard to nuclear weapons deployment between U.S. and Russia. I know it's difficult in this context, but I do believe that it is something that has to be at least contemplated, if not um, uh, not actually possible in this context. But have you thought about that to ensure that those kinds of discussions are taking place? Again, I want to be clear, the U.S. is not a party to this conflict. It is Russia that undertook a full-scale invasion of its neighbor, its sovereign neighbor, Ukraine. The United States is providing security assistance and weapons to Ukraine, but there's no question of the United States providing nuclear weapons to Ukraine. So, so I, I, you know, in my mind, it's very clear the United States is not a direct party to this conflict and will be not sending troops or using its own weapons in this. Yeah, it's just I'm increasingly concerned, I think a lot of people are as well, that talk of doomsday machines just brings us back to Dr. Strangelove. Uh, in uh, the 1962 movie, the exact same language, and uh, and that's when, you know, irrational conduct becomes contemplated, and unfortunately uh, could be engaged in. So I just would hope that any possible conversations or communications are made. I, I would prefer to be public in terms of no first use. But and I do think you've seen the administration be very clear that it believes any talk on the Russian side about the use of nuclear weapons is irresponsible and that we, the United States and Russia, have a particular responsibility as nuclear powers in how we talk about the use of those weapons. Thank you. Senator Thank you. Rich. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, first of all, I, I'm going to pick up where you left off there. This talk of nuclear weapons is, uh, uh, is uh, something that needs to be undertaken very, very cautiously. Words matter. Uh, it, it, it is not the policy of the United States at this time to declare a no first use uh, of nuclear weapons. We have what's called strategic ambiguity in that regard. Uh, our uh, allies uh, have uh, joined with us in, in that particular policy. I share uh, uh, Senator Markey's uh, concern about irrational conduct. Uh, unfortunately, it's not uh, us that have control over the irrational conduct. We've seen probably about as an irrational a conduct as possible uh, when the decision was made to uh, to go into Ukraine. Uh, 
Um, one uh, and, and they continue to talk irrationally, particularly about the uh, use of nuclear weapons. Uh, that's it, it's uh, uh, as uh, the secretary said, as the president has said, uh, that is irresponsible uh, discussion. It, it, they're irresponsible comments, and they ought to come off at the table. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have control of that. So, uh, but we need to keep uh, we need to keep pressing people that uh, when you talk like that, it, it is. It is grossly, grossly uh, irresponsible. Uh, Secretary Donfried, um, well, in fact, if, if any one of the four of you, I wrote a couple of weeks ago uh, concerning uh, the expansion of NATO, and uh, we have, uh, we, the United States, have always been the last one to vote for accession to a, for a new country. Um, I, I want to reverse that this time. Uh, we're about to get two new members, and uh, uh, I, I've encouraged them, and lots of other members of Congress have encouraged them. Um, in talking with uh, the, the, the Finnish uh, people and the, uh, and the Swedish before this whole thing started, they were already having, uh, uh, were already having uh, a real uh, uh, concerns about the decisions they've made to try to remain neutral. And uh, they were already thinking that uh, that they needed to belong to a defensive organization, and we need to underscore over and over and over again: NATO is a defensive organization. It is not an offensive organization, and it's not going to attack anyone. It's not going to uh, take any kind of offensive conduct. Having said that, it is the strongest defensive uh, organization in the world made up of 30, soon to be 32 members, uh, who will defend every square inch of every piece of land in all 32 countries. Russia needs to understand this, and uh, I think they do. I, I think that uh, Putin's already uh, made the calculation that he can't, uh, he, he can't uh, do anything with these, with these countries. If he did, uh, the Baltics would already be gone, I think. So... Uh, we want to continue to underscore that. Um, I look forward to welcoming uh, uh, Finland and, and Sweden. I think if you lived in that country, you'd take one look at what happened in Ukraine and say, look, we have no choice. Uh, we have got to get into NATO uh, and, prov and provide this uh, ourselves uh, with a, a joint defense with all these other countries. Because if we don't, uh, who knows what, uh, what's going to happen. I, I think all of us have misjudged uh, uh, the way things were going in Europe over the last decades, uh, it looked like perhaps Russia was slowly, very slowly, moving to a being a responsible player on the international stage. And in one uh, fell swoop, and uh, uh, they they changed that, and uh, we're kind of back to where we started from. And we all need to uh, need to toughen up and uh, and strengthen our eastern flank, and uh, and and we're going to do that. So, and I, I think they're coming. So ha have. What can you tell me about uh, the, the paperwork on these takes long, I know. And that's why I wrote and said, let's get started. Anybody tell me anything about whether you, whether you got my letter to begin with and uh, whether we're doing some preparation? Well, Senator Risch, very grateful for your engagement on this. As you know, the administration strongly supports NATO's open-door policy. And in fact, a principle that we are defending 
in Russia's war against Ukraine is the right of every sovereign country to make its own decisions about its security and foreign policy. So I think this issue is fundamental in this conflict. And in the case of Finland and Sweden, these obviously are very close and valued defense partners of the United States. As you know, they already have a partnership relationship to NATO. They're both key EU allies. And I am so struck in reflecting on where Finland and Sweden are today in terms of their relationship with NATO, that this is another piece of the mounting evidence of what a strategic failure Putin is suffering today. You know, if we think, take Finland, you know, if we think about how carefully Finland has managed its relationship with Russia over time, Finland has an 830-mile border with Russia. And if you had asked me at my confirmation hearing, do you think Finland and Sweden will apply for NATO membership during your 10 years as assistant secretary? I would have said no. But we saw Finland move immediately after Russia's full-scale invasion on February 24, because it changed the security situation fundamentally. So I am struck by how so much of what Putin says he was seeking to avoid, he has brought about. And I think Finland and Sweden's interest in NATO is a key example of that. So thank you for your engagement and for the question. Yeah, uh, well said. And uh, I, I think that uh, uh, truly what what uh, uh, Putin did in, in invading the Ukraine and the reaction to it by Finland, uh, and for that matter, Sweden, underscores the stupidity uh, of what he did in uh, just uh, getting the exact opposite uh, of what he wanted. And I, I was also struck by how quickly things moved. Uh, I, I talked with uh, with both of them prior to it, and the, the polling in that country was iffy as to whether they should or not. The polling today is is skyrocketed, and, and for very good reason. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member. Um, thank you uh, to our witnesses testifying today. I'm just going to follow up on that line of questioning. Um, Assistant, Assistant Secretary Donfried and uh, Lewis, if you could just give me a simple, concise answer um, I've met recently with foreign ministers uh, and leaders from both Finland and Sweden. Um, they are really pressing for a, a bridge security guarantee from the United States, uh, which the United Kingdom has just provided, so that in a period that they see as a period of potential risk or instability from when they apply for NATO accession to when uh, all the NATO partner nations finally ratify their accession, they're looking for an explicit guarantee. Is this something you recommend? Is it something you think the administration will be announcing or undertaking soon? Senator Coons, thanks very much for the question. You're right. We saw the British uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson extend I understand. security assurances Yes yesterday. or no, please. Uh, what I want to get to is what you mean by security guarantee. We've been clear that there's no Article 5 guarantee right, before a country joins NATO. So we will surely find ways to assure Finland and Sweden. But what the nature of that would be is still to be worked out. Do we have a lot of time to work that out? I think you're aware there's a NATO foreign ministerial I'm well aware. where both Finland and Sweden foreign ministers will be there, and I'm certain this yep. will be a topic of conversation. Thank you. Um, I'm concerned about the port of Odessa, um, and in particular the impact on Ukraine of having um, all, virtually all of its agricultural exports barred from export. Assistant Secretary Lewis, I'd be interested in um, whether you think there is any path 
towards getting some international humanitarian um, avenue towards opening um, the port of Odessa. That may have been addressed by the assistant administrator as well, but to me, um, the humanitarian impact, I chaired a hearing on this yesterday with the head of the World Food Program and a number of others, clearly tens of millions of people will face food insecurity and possibly starvation if the port of Odessa is not opened and if the wheat and maize and sunflower oil exports from Odessa, from Ukraine are not made accessible to the world markets, it's also long-term going to collapse the Ukrainian economy. Um, we're providing about $8 billion, uh, in economic support funds in this supplemental. We can't sustain that year in and year out. How do we get the port of Odessa open? Senator Coons, um, I agree with you. I think this is an incredibly important issue. Um, we are working, obviously, closely with our colleagues um, at DOD and uh, across the board on this issue. Um, but I am going to turn this over uh, to the assistant administrator uh, to, to discuss in more detail on the uh, humanitarian and food issues. Thank you, Senator. This is, um, as we know, uh, far-reaching crisis beyond just Ukraine's borders. And while I can't speak to the security uh, implications surrounding uh, reopening the Odessa port, we are in concert with our European colleagues uh, examining other options, uh, land routes and other ports and throughput. But just by means of transportation and the infrastructure limitations, land transport, I've been told repeatedly, cannot possibly be a route for more than a small percentage of the total, both already in storage and likely to be harvested this year, Correct. agricultural exports of Ukraine. So that's wonderful. Thank you. That's great. I've concluded that if we can't reopen the Black Sea ports, it allows Russia to slowly strangle the Ukrainian economy, and it puts tens of millions at risk. The Am Ukrainians would agree with you, Senator Wheaton. Would you with, agree with me? And I agree with you as well. Um, and and do we have any plan for how to get the port of Odessa reopened? What I would add there is I think we're working closely with the UN um, and others who are trying to look at this problem. As you, as you know, it's an incredibly complicated issue um, in terms of the Black Sea um, and the Russian presence there um, and, and other issues around the port. Um, so while we don't have an answer for you at this time, um, we are working hard with our Great. UN colleagues to uh, find a way forward. Last question, Assistant Secretary Lewis, if you could. What, what work are we doing to prepare for the very real possibility um, that, a, um, that Putin will at some point choose to escalate on the battlefield as a way of covering for um, his troops' failures on the ground? And what are we doing to coordinate and consult uh, both with our allies um, and uh, with Congress to prepare for a rapid response? Um, I'm not saying a public declaration or a red line. I'm just saying for a more robust conversation about what we would do and then what signals we're sending. Um, Senator, really appreciate the question. And I know um, Assistant Secretary Don Freed um, also has been focused on this. Um, I would say that we are aware of all of the possibilities. We are working closely with DOD. We will con continue to consult with you, um, and we are prepared for all of the options um, that could come in this scenario. Obviously, we also want to make it clear, um, and I think we have both publicly and privately, um, that uh, consequences and the seriousness of which we take all of these. Um, and so happy to continue that discussion further with you. It would be great to have some conversation about this. Thank you. Senator Johnson. Hey, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I apologize. I was actually meeting with a relatively large delegation from Turkey, and 
as in transit, as Senator Coons was probably talking about the issue I want to raise, and it is about food security. Earlier in the week, we were briefed by the executive director of the UN World Food Program, David Beasley, and it sounds pretty grim. So, again, I apologize if we're plowing through ground you've already uh, covered, but what is the administration doing? What priority has it put this at in terms of not only opening up the ports, but the silos are full, winter wheat's going to have to be harvested, uh, the fertilizer, um, you know, what, what, what specifically is being done? And other than just talking about to, to your U.S. partners, I mean, are we, are we working to develop a, a neutral flotilla to uh, get into the Black Sea and, and feed the world? And wh whoever's best capable of answering it. Thank you, Senator, for that very important question. And I, I will take uh, what we are doing right now um, and turn it over to my colleague about what potential scenarios and opening up, as you said, a flotilla, ports, what other options are to get the grain out, to get the agricultural commodities out. Um, right now, uh, it's we know the implications are far-reaching globally. And what we are doing um, internally is making sure that the supply lines for feeding the internally displaced persons and Ukrainians still within Ukraine's borders are um, open and that they get essential foodstuffs, both with the WFP okay, but, as well as okay, with the That's farmers. good, but I'm, I'm talking about between Russia and Ukraine, they, what I'm hearing, 30% of world grains. Um, that's a massive amount, and Africa and yes. host nations are at risk of, of starvation. Uh, so, what are we doing to free that up? Uh, I would think a making that a very high-priority item to both President Zelensky and Putin that this must be done and we're going to engineer a way to get it done sooner rather than later. I mean, we, 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 there's, there's not many days to spare here. We have to do this. You're absolutely right, Senator. And the challenge is, is not just the logistics and the exports, but it's actually getting the, the planting season back on track and the inputs in the ground so that the supply, this isn't a one-off just moving what's in storage. It's making sure that the spring harvest proceeds and the summer harvest and fall harvest proceeds and the planting seasons continue. Supply chains are disrupted. Inputs are hard to get in and moved around the country. And frankly, in those areas where the Ukrainians have retaken land, we have to go in with our colleagues and demine that farming space so that they can actually plant safely. We are focused on that. And so I would, I would take the question and put it in two parts. What are we doing to ensure growth and production continues safely? And then there's a logistical issue of how we get it out once we're able to safely plant grow, harvest, and then export. Okay, well, again, I'm, I'm told the silos are full. So th that's kind of step one. Let's empty those silos, okay? And then, you know, har harvest the wheat. But I, again, I would, I would say the first step is to make this a really big issue publicly. Be raising it. I, I, you know, I don't hear everything the administration says, but I have not heard the administration really raise this and, and put this out as a top priority. Senator Johnson, I want to assure you the administration feels your sense of urgency. The United States has the presidency of the UN Security Council this month of May. 
And next week, Secretary Blinken will be spending two days in New York, one for a ministerial on food security and the other for a UN Security Council conversation on this. So the United States is using its presidency of the UNSC this month to put a spotlight on the issue and galvanize international support around this to the specific logistics issue, which you're absolutely right on. We have to date been sending that Ukrainian grain out through the port of Constanta. And the concern is whether we can continue to do that because there may be other grain shipments from Serbia and Hungary coming into that port. So there's a question about whether we can increase the capacity there. Are there other ports on the Black Sea like Varna that we can use? The port of Odessa is part of the conversation. So there we are very actively and urgently focused on this mission. So I want to assure you that, yes, we share your concern and we are trying to put a spotlight on it. I, I, would, just, I would just do it more publicly. Final question. Do you have any initial estimates of the cost of rebuilding? You know, we're, we're talking about a $40 billion uh, aid package right now. Uh, I think the American public, I think the world needs to understand the economic devastation. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the way it gets paid for is eventually on some reasonable royalty on oil and gas. You know, Russia gets less than what they hope for. The people who use oil and gas will you know, obviously be picking up the tab. But would any idea, just make people aware of how much this is going to cost to rebuild Ukraine? Oh, my crystal ball is cloudy because we don't know when the war ends. I understand, but what's the devastation so far? I mean, again, the human toll is incalculable. Yeah, I, I just... We're talking hundreds of billions at least, right? I, I, I have no idea. What I do know is there's one person on this planet who can end this war right. today, and that's Vladimir Putin. Thank you. And I know we all call on him to do that. Okay, thank you. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me thank all of our witnesses for their incredible service during this extremely difficult time. I must tell you, wherever I go, people want to know what they can do to help. We have the energy of, the, of our country and the global community to make sure that we carry out what is necessary, not only to defend uh, Ukraine's sovereignty through the supply of defensive uh, weapons, but also to deal with the humanitarian crisis. But the issue that worries me perhaps the most is whether we have the staying power to continue to isolate Russia for these crimes that they're committed through the maintaining and strengthening of sanctions, and then the accountability issue. I've, been, I've seen too many places in the world where we have compromised accountability in an effort to bring about an end to hostilities. And if we do not bring closure to the atrocities committed by Mr. Putin and Russia in Ukraine, it will not, uh, we will not be uh, able to look at this as a way of preventing this from happening again in the future. So, uh, Ambassador Van Schenck, I know we've had a chance to talk about it. You've talked about it here already. I appreciate your testimony before the Helsinki Commission. I, I just really want to underscore one additional point. The testimonies are now clear that Russia has deported a substantial amount of Ukrainians to Russia, maybe as many as a million, that's their count, maybe as many as 200,000 children. These are not evacuees. Uh, these are forced deportations in an effort to wipe out the Ukrainian culture. That's genocide. 
When will the international community come together to recognize that this is not just war crimes that have been committed, which are horrible in itself by individual soldiers, but a, a plan to wipe out the culture of a country and requires a response that's equal to that charge? Thank you, Senator Hurd, and I, I share your outrage in what we're seeing coming out of Ukraine in terms of the direct attacks against civilians, the use of sexual violence, the deportation forced of civilians. We're also seeing information about individuals who are in the custody of Russia's forces who are being subjected to summary execution and torture. So the, the list is long. Um, as you know, President Biden shares your view about this constituting genocide, and he also raised the, the point that this is a, often a legal determination that is, is difficult to do. The, the key element of the crime of genocide is this intent to destroy a group in whole or in part. And some of the genocidal rhetoric that we're hearing out of, um, out of Russia is, is extremely worrying in this regard. I think what's important is that we continue to document what we're seeing coming out of Ukraine in all sources, from open source investigations to our partners, to intelligence sources, and that we continue to subject that to rigorous analysis so that we have a full understanding of what is happening. All of that can then be shared with domestic, international, foreign prosecutors who are able to open cases. And that's what our office is trying to do with the, the programming money that Congress has accorded to us. And for that, we're quite grateful. Secretary Lewis, um, we all recognize that it's going to be up to the Ukrainians to determine how the resolutions with Russia militarily are managed. That's how it should be. They're a sovereign nation. But the crimes that have been committed by the Russian forces of Mr. Putin are of international interest. Can you assure us that the United States will insist upon accountability for uh, war crimes and genocidal activity that has occurred during this campaign and that's not a negotiable point, considering it's a crime against humanity, not against one country. Well, and I'll um, obviously uh, turn back to my colleague, but at, we are absolutely um, very focused on this issue. Um, and as was noted, you know, documenting um, all of these cases um, to lead to um, whatever the next steps will be on prosecuting them. Um, and we, on my side, um, are very committed to making sure um, that as the war continues, um, that we continue to work closely with the Ukrainians on this as well. Um, there, if you have additional uh, questions about future negotiations, I would like to turn um, uh, to um, Ambassador, I mean, uh, Assistant Secretary Donfried. Glad to hear from you. But this is not just a crime against Ukraine, it's a crime against humanity. Agreed. Do you have a response? Yes, I mean, absolutely. We are working to, um, in coordination with, as I said, with um, the ambassador um, and all of her team that, to make sure that they have the access that they need, that they get um, everything documented um, in terms of these crimes. Um, and then coordinating as well um, with Ambassador Donfried, I mean, Assistant Secretary Donfried, um, as she works with the Ukrainians on it. I'm not totally satisfied with that answer. Is it our position that these crimes are, are crimes against humanity that are not just left up to the warring party to determine, but the global community needs to be engaged on this? 
Senator, I'm not trying not to answer the question. I just think that the appropriate person to answer the question is actually our ambassador who handles these issues. Um, and so I, But I'm she's not, Ambassador Don, uh, Secretary Donfrey, did you want to reply? I think actually, since Secretary Lewis was referring to Ambassador Franchak, but I yeah. would say that the fact that we have created this position at state, which Ambassador Franchak is, is um, filling, shows the critical priority we give to this. And I couldn't agree with you more. This isn't just about Ukraine. These are crimes against humanity. And we are working, it actually gets back to the start of your comment too about the staying power to continue working closely with our allies and partners. And I think this issue of accountability is one that absolutely unites us. And we collectively are working to gather the evidence that will allow us to hold Russia accountable for these crimes. Thank you. Senator Thank you. Ross. Thanks, Mr. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary Donfrey, I wanted to follow up a little bit on what Senator Portman had talked about, which was uh, Russia's willingness to use aggressively energy as a weapon. Mm -hmm. And um, we continue to see Russians threaten our allies, our partners with natural gas, other things that they, they do. What, what additional actions should we be taking in the United States to stop Russia from using its energy resource to coerce and to manipulate um, our, our allies in all of this efforts and to, fund, and to fund Putin's machine? So let me start by saying that I want to make sure we all appreciate the profound impact of February 24 on our European allies and partners. I think the prevailing view in Europe had been that there was a codependence with Russia, that they were importing fossil fuels from Russia, but Russia needed their the revenues from that. And I had a European colleague say to me, Karen, do you understand February 24 is essentially Europe's 9-11, that this is fundamentally changed how we view Russia across all sectors, including energy. And the fact that we've seen the EU move on coal, and yes, that won't hit until August, that we are likely to see movement on an oil ban in the coming weeks. We see how contentious this is within the EU because some countries are 100% dependent on Russia. And then you that still leaves gas. Um, and I think our role here is to help Europeans find other supplies. And this is where US LNG plays a critical role. We're seeing a country like Germany make plans to build two LNG terminals. That'll take a little while, but they're moving in that direction. We also then have to look at the interconnectors that go from those LNG terminals in Europe to countries that don't have terminals that aren't on the coast. So I think we're clear about what the action plan is and it is supporting our European allies and partners to as quickly as possible implement that. Thank you, thank you. Mr. Chairman, I'd just like to point out a news item today that the Biden administration today canceled uh, massive oil and gas lease sales uh, in Alaska, uh, at which is gonna undermine our ability to help uh, the allies to the level that I would wish that we could. This is Secretary McKee. The, uh, I wanna ask about oversight. Uh, the United States is spending massive amounts. The American people are spending massive amounts to, to help the people of Ukraine. So my question has to do with how we can protect against waste and fraud and abuse since we don't really have folks on the ground to, to oversee some of this. And then in terms of supporting Ukraine, what role our European partners have relative to the United States and how we can work together to best help the people of Ukraine? Thank you, Senator, for the question. I would um, actually... Uh, 
for the record, we have over 40 active programs within Ukraine and over 700 implementing partners that are overseeing the movement of relief supplies, goods, services, and and um, providing oversight. Our my mission, the USAID mission team, is currently not in country, but our partners have been since day one, and we are in regular communication to ensure that that the resources are getting to where they uh, need to be as quickly as possible and as safely as possible. Um, on your question regarding uh, uh, coordinating with our European partners and other donors, um, it is in lockstep from various points, not only in Brussels, obviously, but in Poland, Lviv, and elsewhere. And we are making sure that that coordination and oversight of our, of our resources are not duplicative and that we are um, reinforcing the the assistance that we're bringing to bear and that it's leveraging off each other, not only from our existing programs, but obviously the influx of the humanitarian assistance, as well as the Office of Transition Initiatives that's had networks throughout the country and has been able to move nimbly to be able to respond quickly. And Secretary Lewis, you know, Russia continues to use economic instruments and propaganda to achieve its objectives, exert influence across Europe and the world, try to influence others through military intimidation, trade relations, cyber attacks, disinformation, energy dependence, all of it. What do you believe are the key components to counter Russia's economic pressure, cyber attacks, propaganda campaigns? Um, So your question is related to an essential part of the strategy, which is how do we impose costs on Russia and prevent them from influencing in a very negative way our allies and partners? So there are various elements of that strategy. Surely one is sanctions. And there, I don't think we appreciate enough the magnitude of the sanctions we put in place against Russia. It's an order of magnitude different than what we did in 2014. We've never put sanctions on the central bank, for example, of a G20 country. And Russia has been artificially inflating the value of the ruble, so I don't think we have a clear read on the impact that has had, but I believe it's profound. We've seen over 600 private sector companies leave Russia, and those are not short-term decisions. They're not going back anytime soon. On the export controls, those are having a clear impact in terms of our ability to degrade Russia's defense industry. So I think if you look across the range of costs we're imposing on Russia, it is affecting those different sectors that you highlighted. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, good to see you all. Um, uh, Secretary uh, Lewis and Secretary Donfried, I'm going to talk to you on the record about a few of the things that we were discussing uh, before the hearing began. Um, uh, Secretary Donfried, uh, yesterday, uh, the relatively new prime minister of Bulgaria was in town, and of course, this is a nation on the front lines of this crisis, almost entirely dependent on Russian energy, uh, now cut off from that supply. If Bulgaria survives this moment, if this government survives this moment, it's a really important sign to Russia that um, they are going to be unsuccessful in the future in trying to use energy as a mechanism to, to bully 
neighboring nations. Um, there are a handful of things we can do. Um, there may be some creative financing mechanisms we can engage in. We can also um, you know, try to shed light on the pretty massive profits that the private energy companies are making right now. There certainly is an ability for those companies to be able to do some kind of temporary discount uh, for nations that are facing these crises. Um, but I, I wanted you to just talk for a minute about uh, the importance of supporting our friends in Bulgaria and the importance of um, you know, making sure that we have the right tool set available to help other nations that are going to be in a set of dominoes pretty soon, Greece maybe next, uh, that are going to need help from Europe and the United States to figure out this problem of Russian cutoff. So I want to be clear. The administration is all in on supporting Bulgaria here. As you referenced, Russia made the decision to cut Poland and Bulgaria off of gas supplies. Poland was already moving in terms of weaning itself off of Russian energy. So Poland can manage this relatively well. Bulgaria is much more vulnerable. And I think you saw the strong support for Bulgaria when the prime minister was here. The national security advisor met with him. The secretary of state met with him. And then he also had an opportunity to meet the vice president. And I have colleagues who are working literally every day with Prime Minister Petkov on helping Bulgaria think through how does it manage this cutoff from Russia and how can we help them make sure they have the supplies. I, I, I just hope that everybody in the administration hears this as a priority and is ready to be nimble um, and quick uh, because this is a present crisis, uh, and there's lots of reasons for us to decide that our bureaucracy isn't properly set up to help them, in particular our development financing arms, but let's find a way to get to yes. Um, Assistant Secretary Lewis, uh, there's a um, headline from the Washington Post from about a week ago, um, quote, America's Gulf allies are now Putin's enablers. We are about to vote on a resolution of disapproval for a arms sale to Bahrain, but most of this attention has been on the Saudis, who have decided to um, refrain from increasing uh, oil production, uh, despite the fact that that could be the most important thing to help many of our allies through this very uh, difficult moment. Um, tell us what the present disposition is of our Gulf allies. Are they working with us on the fight um, to uh, make sure Russia pays a price for its invasion of Ukraine? Or are they, as this uh, editorial writer suggests, enabling Vladimir Putin? Our relationship with them um, has um, many components. Um, this is an important one, um, and we have continued to press them on this front. We also are working with them on a whole range of issues in the Gulf, from um, shared security concerns, um, issues, as you know, inside Yemen as well. 
Well, I, I, that's a very diplomatic answer. Um, you asked them for help, and let's just be honest, they said no. I mean, that's the reality. Um, and at some point, we have to deal with that reality. This is the most important crisis that the world has faced. It is the number one national security priority for the United States, and our allies in the Gulf have been asked for help and have said no to us. Um, it's up to us as a country as to whether there's any consequence uh, to that uh, decision. If there isn't, um, I think we're just asking to get run over um, time and time again. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Merkley. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for bringing your expertise here to the committee. And uh, uh, Secretary uh, Lewis, uh, you mentioned higher-end capabilities, and we've heard quite a bit in various forums about uh, the difference between uh, taking on columns of tanks parked on highways and taking on the, the Russian artillery in the, in the Far East. And we have shipped some 90 howitzers into the, into the country. Mm -hmm. And I, I continue to be amazed that the Russians have not been more successful in interdicting the supply lines, but we've worked very hard to make that difficult for them. But we are hearing uh, that uh, we are anticipating Russia is going to refocus on trying to interrupt those, those supply lines, uh, realizing that the weaponry we're supplying is a, a critical part of this uh, battle. And uh, can you fill us in on, uh, on whether we are fairly confident that, that we can continue to uh, essentially prevent Russia from uh, uh, hitting those supply lines effectively inside Ukraine? So let me turn to the picture in the Donbass uh, in which the Russians have had a lot of time to move artillery into that area. Uh, when we look at the kind of the balance of power of uh, artillery, uh, howitzers uh, in the, uh, the east, um, how do our 90 howitzers stack up against what the, the Russians have in, have in place? Well, um, I think that um, it is not just the howitzers um, that they have. As, as you are aware, we have provided them with a whole range of um, uh, defense articles um, to help in that fight, and we're going to continue to do so. I would also say that as we look at this phase of the fight, we are looking at putting in different types of systems, and I don't want to go into the details of the systems for um, reasons, again, you can imagine we don't um, want to share what may be coming, but we are looking at um, additional high-end systems that would provide new capabilities. Some of those, of course, require training, um, and um, uh, we need to make sure there's time to do that as well. 
So as we look at this uh, uh, dynamic, uh, the ability to make a difference in this standoff is going to have a lot to do with how well uh, the Ukrainians are able to know the exact locations of, of targets, which we have, of course, in a lot of increased capability in, in uh, determining those locations, uh, and to, uh, to take them out, but also not just kind of uh, uh, artillery, trying to take out artillery, but also the, the role of drones. And we've seen how, how the drone world has changed dramatically over the last uh, uh, 10 years. Uh, I must say, uh, I, I don't think any Russian soldier wants to serve inside a, a tank anymore, given javelins and, and, and drones. Um, but um, as this fundamental question of, uh, is this a long stalemate, or are there, are there provisions that can affect this balance of, 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 uh, of forces in the, in the East uh, that might help with pushing Russia to the wall and therefore at some point a, a uh, end of this war. Um, do we feel like, like that the, uh, the technology we're providing, I realize you can't go into all the details, but in the, this kind of range of uh, weaponry that can now uh, take out um, uh, such, uh, such artillery uh, entrenched, that we have a, there is a chance Ukrainians really can change that, that what could otherwise be a long standoff in the East? I think you're ask, asking exactly the right question. And I think, um, you, as you point out, the provision of the drones, um, the switchblades that we provided, um, other drones that have been provided by other countries have really made a significant difference on the battleground, as, as, you, as well as you pointed out, the javelins um, specifically related to the tanks. So um, we are looking hard at the question you're asking, which is how can we make sure that the technology needed for this phase of the fight is going to work and get them exactly what we need? Now, while I can't guarantee you um, the outcomes or the end game, I can tell you that um, we are going to do everything possible to make sure they have exactly what they need. And I would also add that I'm happy to discuss this in more detail with you or any other member of the committee um, in a closed setting um, where we can get into more details. Thanks. I'll just close by echoing the concerns my colleagues have expressed about the uh, impact of the war on global food supplies, the difficulty of getting uh, uh, food out of the Ukraine, uh, just the, uh, the extraordinary reverberations that will occur on already uh, um, very centers where there's a lot of hunger and a lot of starvation. And the United States needs to lead the world in, in helping counter that. Thank you. Um, I have to go to the Yusika conference, so Senator Sheehan, would you preside? And you're also uh, recognized next. So, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, and thank you all for being here. I, I want to, Senator Coons asked about the Port of Odessa and with respect to food and um, other supplies going in and out. But I want to broaden that to the entire Black Sea region because I did a hearing before the European Affairs Subcommittee last year on Black Sea security. And what we heard there was that we should be thinking about a broader strategy to push back on how Russia has engaged in the Black Sea. This was before the war in Ukraine. So can you talk about how we're thinking about the Black Sea region right now, the, the 
potential impact on security, not just for Ukraine, but for the other countries that border the Black Sea, and, and how we're going to wrest control away from Russia over the Black Sea. Senator Xi, maybe I can start on that. Thank you Please. very much for the question, and it is highly relevant. You're right, it was relevant before February 24, but it's only taken on greater urgency since. And I think the immediate response we've seen within NATO is a decision to create four new battle groups in Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary, and Slovakia. So we had had the four battle groups in the north, in the Baltics and Poland, because the focus very much had been on the northern flank. And now we're looking at the entirety of NATO's eastern flank, so north and south. So the first thing is the battle groups. And then the conversation that's play taking place in NATO right now in the run-up to the Madrid summit at the end of June is what should NATO's force posture look like going forward? And again, that conversation is ongoing now among allies, but there will be decisions made and then announcements in Madrid in late June about what NATO's force posture will look like going forward. And there's no question in my mind that the importance of how we posture ourselves in NATO southeast along the Black Sea is a critical piece of the force posture question going and, forward. And do you want to talk about Turkey's role right now in the Black Sea? Because I understand that they have been playing a more positive role. Turkey is a critical strategic ally along the Black Sea, always has been. And of course, Turkey is welcoming this focus on buttressing security on the Black Sea. And in the case of Russia's brutal war against Ukraine, Turkey has been engaged in terms of providing assistance to Ukraine, also providing a platform for some of the diplomacy around trying to end the war. So yes, I do think Turkey is playing an important and helpful role. And in the Black Sea? And in the Black Sea, of course. I mean, Turkey, speak to the Black Sea? Um, well, yes. You know, in terms of enforcing the Montreux Convention, Turkey has played a very helpful role. So yes, I do think Turkey in all of those areas is proving itself to be a key helpful and strategic ally to the U.S. Thank you. I know we're talking about Ukraine, but you have just returned from the Western Balkans, and one concern that I have is that that's a potential breeding ground for Russian meddling. Can you speak to what you saw while you were there and concerns that you have and what we should be thinking about in terms of really staying focused on what's happening in the Western Balkans? Well, Senator Shaheen, let me just start by thanking you, thanking Senator Murphy, thanking Senator Tillis for the time and attention you've devoted to the Western Balkans. You had traveled there right before I had, and I very much benefited from the conversations we had both before and after my trip. And I think the Western Balkans, it's always been important, but it's an example of how Russia's war against Ukraine is affecting the entire continent. And Russia has long played a complicated role in the Western Balkans. And it is a place where U.S. engagement and diplomatic presence really matters. And it was very important to me to go in the wake of February 24 to make it clear to all six countries of the Western Balkans that we, the United States, are paying attention and that we want to help them move forward on their path to Euro-Atlantic integration. And 
there are different challenges in each of these countries, but it is a place where American diplomatic muscle can make a difference. And the fact that you were part of a bipartisan delegation there also underscored that this is not only the Biden administration, but in fact, that Congress in a bipartisan fashion is focused and engaged on that region. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm out of time, but I just want to um, put Ms. Lewis on the table, the importance of working with the Ukrainians as we're looking at implementing women, peace, and security, that they have a real interest, and in the Ukrainian women are really the diplomatic arm now for much of what's happening in the country, and ensuring that we work with them um, throughout this crisis, I think, is very important. So um, I know you will be doing that, and I will um, put in a question for the record to get more specifics. Senator Kane. Thank you, Senator Sheen, and thank you to the witnesses. So I'm going to offer a set of compliments and then a critique slash question. So the, the compliments, I, I think that Biden administration has done so much right in this very difficult context, um, including that there was such a gulf in, in the interpretation of intelligence between our European allies and the United States. I could see this at the Halifax Security Forum in November on the same evidence, the U.S. was saying there's going to be an invasion, and most of our European allies were saying, no, there's not. It's a muscle-flexing exercise. So what the Biden administration had to do is say, we hope you're right and we're wrong, but if we're right, can we agree in advance on a set of diplomatic steps, sanctions, Nord Stream pipeline, humanitarian military, can we agree in advance so that if there's an invasion, we can snap into place a coordinated response very, very quickly? And I think that was just masterfully done. And I know State Department was very, very key in that. The, but the two areas of critique, and I want to ask you about one, are, one, we dramatically overestimated Russian military strength, and so that's a question for the Pentagon. Um, but the other one I'm really puzzled by is what are we doing to help the energy situation in Ukraine and Europe? And so first, and this is probably in Secretary Donfried's space, are you involved in sort of interagency discussions about how we backstop Ukraine and our European allies. You know, we're asking them to cancel Russian imports, stop Nord Stream 2. Is the State Department involved in a significant interagency discussion about that? Yes, we are. And is that you that's involved in those discussions? I am not the one leading those discussions. There is a Bureau of Energy and Natural Resources at State that is in the lead together with Amos Hochstein, who is our special yep. representative on energy. So those are the two leading those conversations at state and literally having those conversations every day, not only with the countries affected like Ukraine, but also with our partners in the European Union who are playing a critical role here as well. Well, well let me tell you why I'm so puzzled about what's going on in this space. And, and you can take this back to Mr. Hochstein and others. Um, Senator Murphy was talking about the fact that we're not getting cooperation out of our Gulf allies that we might want in terms of more energy supply to Europe. But Senator Barrasso pointed out today President Biden announces that he's canceling a massive uh, oil sale and lease in the Cook Inlet in Alaska. Um, we also have American energy companies that could produce a lot more energy, and they're not, maybe for their own reasons, by producing less, they keep the price up. But I don't see coordinated action on behalf of the United States and using the Defense Production Act or others to make them do that. Um, I, I get the reason for the cancellation announced today was concerns about climate. That's the, 
That's the reason. And we ought to be concerned about climate. But it strikes me, if we're the largest energy producer in the world, and we know that at least transitionally our European allies need energy from sources other than Russia, that us going to Saudi Arabia and say, please produce more energy when we're not willing to do it ourselves, I just don't get it. I, th I think, I, I don't know that there's a coherent strategy, and if there is, I think the messages are mixed. I mean, I, I would be curious whether the announcement of the Biden administration today about, the, about this massive cancellation in Alaska, was that discussed in this interagency? The interagency should be discussing Ukrainian energy need, European energy need, high gas prices in the United States, climate, which affects all of us, Ukraine and Europe. But, but I get the feeling that there's sort of a left-hand, right-hand problem and that some of the administration is really concerned, as they should be, about climate, and some of the administration is really concerned about trying to backstop our European allies on energy, but I don't really see meaningful coordination, and if there is, I'm sure not getting messages that suggest that there is. And so I guess that what I would like you, Secretary Donfrey, to take back to Mr. Hochstein and the administration is, I think we need to see from the administration sort of a diplomatic plan. If we're telling the Europeans, get off Russian energy, you're too dependent on Russian energy, well, what are we telling them to do? Beg the Saudis? Well, the Saudis are saying no. Um, and then the Europeans are looking at us, and we've got, we've got supply that we could use, at least transitionally, that we're apparently not willing to use. Now, I will say, this Cook Inlet cancellation, if that had been granted, it wouldn't be producing energy for some time. So it's not like that would drop gas prices tomorrow. But there's a mixed message. And I, I, I don't really believe that the U.S. is full-throated leaning into helping our European allies deal with their energy needs. And, and in fact, if they were looking at what we were doing, we're asking the Saudis to help them, but we're leaving our own assets that could be used to help them sort of strand, stranded right now. So I don't know if you have a comment on my mm -hmm. puzzlement. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like you to take that back to the State Department. I'd like to see a lot more coherence from the administration on this, but if you have a comment, I'd be very welcome to it. Sure. Well, Senator, I, I am very happy to take that back. And it was kind that you started with compliments and totally appropriate that you have critiques as well. And we certainly can benefit from, from your thinking on this. Uh, you know, I, I want to be clear that it's not just the U.S. saying to the Europeans, you need to wean yourselves off Russian energies. That is a belief the Europeans themselves hold. So I think there's a synergy there between the perspectives. And I think the hope in the administration is that there's a way to marry the climate concerns with the energy security needs. And I think if you look at some of the new technology, like the small modular nuclear reactors that, for example, Romania is pursuing with us that there are some real opportunities to, in fact, marry those two goals of climate and energy security. Uh, certainly the administration in releasing strategic petroleum reserve oil from the strategic petroleum reserve is an effort also to enhance supply that's out there. But I'm happy to take this back and share it with my colleagues. And I will note that the president has nominated a, an assistant secretary for the Bureau of ENR, Environment and Natural Resources, and it is Jeff Pyatt, who just stepped down as our ambassador to Greece. So I will commend the committee for looking expeditiously at that nomination and giving us even more muscle on these energy issues at the State Department. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I yield back. Senator Sheen. Um, thank you, Senator Van Hollen. 
Uh, thank you, Senator Shaheen. Great to see all of you. Uh, as uh, you all well know, um, Finland's leaders announced um, yesterday uh, their desire to uh, join NATO. Uh, we expect uh, Sweden to follow suit uh, shortly. Uh, uh, Senator Shaheen co-chairs the, the Senate NATO Observer Group, and we had a bipartisan meeting yesterday uh, along with some NATO representatives. And my question uh, to you, and I don't know, maybe Ambassador Donfried, this is best for you. Is it uh, the administration's intention to process this as quickly as possible with our other NATO partners? And uh, when can we expect uh, to see a submission to the United States Senate for approval? So we right now are waiting on Finland and Sweden to officially apply for NATO membership. And our expectation based on the news today and, and other things is that that is likely to happen very quickly. And as you know, throughout, we have strongly supported NATO's open door policy and, in fact, an underlying principle that we have been defending in standing up to Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine is the right of every sovereign country to determine its own foreign and security policy. And in Finland and Sweden, we have two close and valued defense partners. Uh, so certainly this is going to be a topic of conversation at the NATO foreign ministerial this weekend, where both the Finnish and Swedish foreign ministers will be there. And I know there's been bipartisan support in Congress uh, on this issue. So I, I mentioned earlier, I think you may not have been here, that what strikes me really quite intensely as I reflect on where Finland and Sweden are is the extent to which this underscores the strategic failure Putin is suffering. Yes. Right? No, there's, there's no doubt about it. I think so it underscores um, yeah. the miscalculation. Um, just uh, on that point, uh, well, beyond the NATO point, but a lot of our defense partners, as you know, we've been more and more successfully urging them to supply Ukraine with weapons. Uh, they need to have their supplies backfilled, uh, sometimes with replacements, sometimes with the next generation, more modern um, U.S. systems. Uh, I, I hope uh, we're really pushing hard. I don't have time to get into details, but just um, th that is something we continue to hear about, um, not lack of desire, but uh, the bureaucratic levers moving too slowly in that process. Uh, obviously, part of our approach uh, is providing Ukraine with weapons. Uh, the other is the set of economic sanctions, uh, including, as has been discussed here, the efforts uh, to um, wean some of our partners off of their dependence on Russian oil and gas. Um, we have a headline yesterday about the EU's efforts uh, to adopt a, a Russian oil embargo being spoiled by Hungary. My question um, to you, uh, Ambassador Donfried, what are we doing about Hungary using our bilateral relationship? I mean, they are right now holding up a decision by the European Union that's uh, a critical part of our overall strategy. Um, what are we doing about it? Well, thank you, Senator Holland. First, just on your first point about backfilling, I can assure you Assistant Secretary Lewis wakes up every morning and goes to sleep every All night right. thinking this about backfilling allies. And I'll just give, I think the S-300 case in Slovakia is a great example where the Slovaks had a capability very useful to the Ukrainians, and we were able to provide a Patriot battery to give that protection of their capital, Bratislava, so they could then in turn pass that system can always do better, but I do want to commend the work of my colleagues on that front. Uh, and then to your second question on the EU oil ban, so 
in many ways, this is a question for the EU. My assessment no, of no, what's I, happening... I, with all respect, I'm asking, using our bilateral so, so, relationship with Hungary, what are we doing to tell them this is unacceptable to be standing in the way? So what I was going to say is my understanding of what's happening right now is that Hungary is negotiating for a longer period of time to wean itself off Russian oil, and that is the deal that they are working at in the EU. So I, I am still rather optimistic that the EU will arrive at this, if not this week next. I think we're actually very close to seeing the EU put in place that oil ban. Okay. Um, so the, the good news here in Congress is we seem to be on the verge of passing the $40 billion emergency assistance uh, bill uh, that includes uh, $5 billion for uh, food assistance to address food insecurity around the world. I, I want to second the comments many of my um, my colleagues have made with respect to the urgent need to free the grain out of uh, the ports of Odessa and Black Sea. I know that's easier said than done. Here's the thing I want to emphasize. I don't think that we collectively and, uh, have done a good enough job of telling the world that rising food prices and rising food insecurity and rising hunger is a part of a deliberate strategy of Vladimir Putin. Uh, we continue to hear from you know people that that Putin is being successful in trying to you know persuade people in sub-Saharan Africa that somehow this is our fault when he's killing people in Ukraine and he's killing more and more people around the world in days to come through food insecurity. And we need to really up our game in terms of explaining to folks around the world. And I've, I've been looking at that list of folks uh, in that original UN vote the 35 abstentions and those that didn't vote, a, a lot of them are suffering. Their people are suffering uh, because of uh, rising food prices. We're seeing it around the world. We're seeing it here. It seems to me that I would hope that in a couple of weeks, if we were to, for example, have another vote at the UN, hypothetically, can we get some of these 35 abstentions to vote to condemn based on what's happening? So I'm not sure if you're channeling Secretary Blinken or he's channeling you, <laughs> but he is very focused on exactly the way you frame this issue, that we need to make clear to the world who is responsible for this. And it is Vladimir Putin and this unprovoked war that he has started in Ukraine. And that is why Secretary Blinken wants to use this month's UN Security Council presidency, which the U.S. inhabits, to focus on food security. And next week, there will be the ministerial meeting in New York, and there will also be the UN Security Council uh, discussion of this. And it gets to your point that when you look at those UN General Assembly votes, whether it's those who abstained, the 141 who voted for that initial resolution to condemn Russia's war and demand that Russia withdraw, that we both want to hold that coalition together and move folks from that abstention column over. And Secretary Blinken completely agrees that food security is a critical piece of this because so much of the developing world is suffering from food insecurity. So, yes. Happy Vladimir Putin could change the situation today, right, yep. if he uh, just agreed to open up, uh, help us open up those ports. Thank you, um, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Senator Van Hollen. I am told that Senator Menendez is on his way back. So, Senator Kane, you have another round you would like to ask? It, it's not a round. It's just a suggestion for my colleagues. World Hunger Day is May 28th. Um, 
that one of the worst famines in the world was a man-made famine, the Holodomor, that was carried out by Joseph Stalin against Ukraine in 1932 and 1933. It was a planned effort to starve millions, and the estimates of the Ukrainians that died in that effort were anywhere between 3 and 10 million. It was an effort that was specifically designed to stop Ukrainian independence. I would hope my colleagues and I might consider doing something together in commemoration of World Hunger Day this year and reminding the world of the Holodomor, which has separately been recognized by a senatorial resolution about 15 years ago. But I think particularly this year, we might want to draw attention to it. I think that's a really good point, and I'm happy to join you in that effort. I am too. I think there's also a, a House resolution that uh, passed very recently uh, pointing out that uh, Vladimir Putin is using food as a weapon of war, and maybe we can combine uh, that. If, uh, if there's an opportunity, uh, Senator Shaheen, can I ask another question? Sure. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, as this war goes on, um, one, one factor will be what is, the, what is public sentiment within Russia? Uh, and what pressures, if any, uh, Putin feels. feels. Obviously, um, he's had to publicly concede now the deaths of uh, a lot of Russian soldiers and generals. But as we know, he's also um, successfully put up uh, a a sort of the Iron Curtain uh, to prevent uh, facts and information, true information, from reaching the Russian people. There are reports, and there are lots of very ingenious people working to try to overcome uh, that sort of, uh, you know, internet iron curtain. Any evidence that we are breaking through more, that the truth is breaking through more to the Russian people? Have, have we seen any evidence of that? Unfortunately, I do not think we are seeing evidence of that, and that is not for lack of effort. There are a lot of very smart people who focus on press and on public diplomacy who've been trying to think, how can we get this message into Russia. And to your point, there was a sense that having ever more body bags return to Russia was one way that message would get through to Russian mothers and Russian fathers. Uh, but it's hard to know how reliable the public opinion statistics are that we are seeing coming out of Russia, but we're just not seeing any significant change uh, in public opinion in Russia. And I think it suggests how very effectively Vladimir Putin is controlling the narrative in country. May I add one thing on that? I, this isn't related to public opinion, but I do think it's related to world opinion. Um, as part of this supplemental request where, um, just to get back to your earlier question, um, part of the $4 billion we will be using specifically for backfill of both um, countries who have already contributed and countries who may be contributing in the future. So we hear you on that message, um, and we are committed to that. What I would say is I also think there is an opportunity here for us to work on um, helping other countries uh, divest from Russian equipment moving forward. And I think in terms of um, we are seeing this is outside of Russia, but we are seeing the poor performance of the Russian military um, we are seeing the challenges that they are having with their own supply chain, um, which obviously affects them internally, but it gives us an opportunity to also send that message around the world to um, our partners and allies and friends um, about Russia's reliability as a defense partner. And we also are looking to use, um, assuming the new supplemental moves forward, um, a funding to focus on that. So while that doesn't change um, 
opinion inside Russia in the short term. I do think there are long-term impacts um, and, uh, frankly, opportunities that we need to seize right now. And if I may just jump on, it's not within Russia, but um, we have had uh, great success in targeting anti-war messaging campaigns to Russian-speaking populations in Ukraine and and some of the displaced folks to help um, uh, counter the the negative narrative or lack of any narrative, and uh, that messaging has has tilted the needle a bit. I mean, I think in the longer term, we are going to see the impact of the sanctions and export controls on the Russian public, I just think that's not a short-term impact because the sanctions, their effect will compound over time and Russian citizens will feel that. And certainly also with the over 600 private sector companies that have left the country, they're also going to be feeling that. So I do think over time the impact does compound and we will see it affect Russian citizens more than it is right now. But I don't see that as a short-term uh, effect. Thank you. Thank you, uh, yep. Senator Shaheen, for presiding. Thank you to my colleagues, I know, uh, for their inquisitive uh positive questions or keeping a record open. I just want to have, I wanted to come back and keep the, uh, the, the hearing open because I have a question for Ambassador Van Schack, and it's really a follow-up on Senator Cardin's question, which I know the State Department is loath to say yes or no to a question, uh, but this one seems rather easy. And the question to follow up is, on the question of war crimes and uh, human rights violations that are taking place by Putin and Russia in Ukraine, uh, that is something uh, that is a, a, uh, a global call. It's not a Ukrainian call per se, alone. And so is it our view that in fact uh, we will pursue uh, those violations uh, the United States, yes, working in concert with other countries and allies, but that is something that we will pursue regardless of what Ukraine uh, decides to pursue or not. Yes, thank you so much, Senator Menendez. I appreciate the opportunity to circle back to this critical question of staying the justice course. Um, frankly, the United States and the international community has now just invested too much into accountability to allow that to be negotiated away. So transitional justice, justice, truth-telling, reconciliation, all of that must be part of any negotiated solution. Um, we did it at Dayton and we can do it here. And frankly, the victims of Russians, Russia's aggression and the egregious violations deserve nothing less. Okay, so then am I to assume that the answer you just gave me is yes? Yes. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. This record will remain open to the close of business tomorrow uh, for any questions that members may have uh, for our panelists. And with the thanks of the committee for your service and your appearance here today, this hearing is adjourned.